Mananj, thanks for taking the time to have a conversation with me today. We're reviving the podcasts at the request of someone who we may or may not hear on a later episode. But yeah, definitely excited to get back into this. Well, Eli, thank you for having me. I really appreciate uh, you asking to begin with. And I know, you know, we've had a bunch of conversations in the past and I know today is going to be just as good, if not better. So thank you for having me on, man. Yeah, love the enthusiasm. So I figured it'd be good to start with just like an introduction and background about you. And a good question that I've gained from listening to other podcasts is just, you know, starting as far back as you're willing, can you give the story of who you are and how you got to where you are today? Okay, that's a great question. Um, I'll, st- I'll start off with this. You know, I've, I've always struggled with my story. And I, I feel like a bunch of other people our age will, will sort of resonate with that. Like, we are only at like chapter two in this book when it comes to our career, but I'll try to give you a good synopsis of, you know, my story, who I am, and, and hopefully that'll help the listeners understand who, you know, who, who is this person talking. I've always been interested in like technology and games more specifically. Growing up after school, the first thing I would do was sort of like log onto my laptop and power up Minecraft. And, and so I remember for a few summers, that's what I would play like 12 hours a day religiously. And I'd Skype my friend, and, and some days, I think before I had Skype, I, we used to call each other on a landline and play games together before there was Discord, before there's any of that. And so um, a lot of my childhood was, was spent online. And I used to sort of get my information from YouTube. And I was one of the first people on Instagram and Snapchat and all those things. And so there was this sense of like using technology as a coping mechanism. Cause you know, every, everyone has a different coping mechanism when they grow up, but it's like, it's a double-sided coin, right? It's like at some level using technology in that way is good. And some level it's, it's not, but moving on high school came around and in high school, that was when things really started to change for me. Um, you know, girls started, girls started kind of looking my way and I was starting to just like realize, holy, there's a little bit more to life here, huh? And so I kind of stopped playing video games and was interested in like status games at that point. I guess that's what you can call it. And so it's like, I was on all the sports teams and you know, I was friends with a lot of people. And I can, t- I can tell you a bit of a personal story. Um, 10th grade, I was on the basketball team and it, it's a, a bit of a scar actually. We were in the championship game and it was the fourth quarter we were down to and I had not played the whole game the coach called me and I had not played the whole game. So <laughs> I was shooting bricks and I missed the first free throw. Like I was, I was supposed to shoot the first free throw, I missed it. And so anyone who knows basketball knows that if you miss the first free throw and you're down two, you need to miss the second one so you can get the rebound. I made that shot and then we lost the championship. And so <laughs> looking back on it now, I can sort of like connect the dots as to like, I became a dog after that. If you, if you think like the Mamba mentality, David Goggins, like that was my thing up until high school. And, and I just worked, worked, worked. I became the captain of my basketball team in my senior year. We went on to do great things then. And sort of, sort of after that university came. And so I'll stop here. Is this story interesting or should I speed it up? No, no, definitely don't want to, don't want to cut you off, but that is a great story about, you know, this Mamba mentality. I think all of us, at least people who do competitive kind of activities, there is like a moment where 
you either lose in such a humiliating or devastating way or something along those lines happens and it clicks in your brain that you never want to feel that feeling again. Oh, 100%. And after after you feel that and after you decide, I'm never feeling this way again, you can almost do anything. Anything. Almost anything. Almost anything. Maybe not go to the moon. But yes, I agree. One of the things I, I noticed around that time was like, I spent a lot of time in sports, but like academically, I was like, not exactly like amazing, but like, I was still pretty good. I managed to get into university I wanted to get into, studied computer science, but the university, I struggled a lot. And I think for any young adult kind of going through college, university, like that's a very, it's a very trying time. And so like on multiple dimensions, I was struggling academically, like university is no joke, the type of coursework you have to go through. And, and I, I remember kind of going through a bit of like a, a depressed, a depression, you could call it, you know, leading up to COVID. And so, you know, having to go to school through COVID and, and sort of missing out like on two years of your time at college is kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of sucked, but it was also like a blessing in disguise, in disguise. But from there, things really started to change for me. I got a job at my first startup and a funny story about, about that startup is that job kind of fell into my lap. I remember going on like a job board for um, at school and I noticed that they wanted to, to hire a UX researcher and I didn't know what that was at all. I was just like, yo, I just need a job. I don't care what it is. And so I, I applied for it, not knowing what it was. I did like maybe an hour worth of research. And I remember going to the call and like, it went well. And like, I answered all the questions. And then afterward, she's like, yeah, like, I like you. Let's, let's work together. And it was just so surreal to me how that happened. It's like, I'm not qualified for this thing at all. And like, now that I'm two years out from that experience, I can 100% assure you that I was not qualified. I should not have gotten that job, but I somehow did. I somehow tricked her. I, I don't know how I did it, but it was at that job that I learned a lot. It was sort of the first place where I learned about like, how do you be a professional? How do you work with a team? How do you deal with setbacks? How do you especially deal with like your ego? Because as a user researcher, um, and I guess this is a good context to share, the, the startup I worked for was called Umay, And they developed this hardware device that goes on your eyes and it like heats up. And so think of it as like a digital warm compress. And it helps with sleep. It helps with eye care because people are on screens so much. And I really like jived with their mission statement and their values. So that's why I took the job. But I remember my job was to interview, collect feedback on the product. And I remember having these devastating calls, absolutely devastating. And it was a real learning experience for me because a lot of people who work on product teams, they become very attached to their product. It's hard to be objective. And it happened to me too. And so I remember feeling like I was being attacked when I was not being attacked. The product was just being critiqued, right? And no critique is right or wrong. It's all good stuff. It's all learning if you can frame it that way. And so I remember having calls with people I should not have been talking to. I'll be honest, like high up people. <laughs> it was almost funny, like looking back at it, like they should not have put me in that room, but I'm immensely grateful that they did because it, it built my confidence up in a way that I never thought possible. Like I didn't think I could operate at a high level. And at every point in the way, the, the founders name, names are Ali and Charmin, so they're brother and sister. Um, and, and at any point they said, hey, this is for your growth. They never thought of it as like, we're doing this for 
investors. We're doing this, like, you know, like none of that stuff. To them, it was very personal. We want you to be the best person you can be. And I really appreciate that because they put me in very stressful situations, I'll be honest. Uh, and then around that time, I started getting into crypto. Um, and I, I know the story is going on for a bit, but um, the crypto part is very recent. I started, uh, I actually started with Cardano. Are you familiar with Cardano? No, what is that for the for the listeners? They might have heard of ADA. And, and, and you know, a lot of people, they start with Bitcoin and Ethereum. And I actually didn't start there. I started with this guy. I watched a video of his, Charles Hoskinson. He's the founder. And this guy sold me so hard on whatever this Cardano business was. Like, I didn't care what the technology was. I just liked him. <laughs> and I liked the way he sort of explained what this cryptocurrency did. And so from there, I just started like slowly investing and, and learning about the space and losing a fuck ton of money. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but so much money. I lost so much, dude. It's it's actually kind of funny. Like looking back at it, like I, I think I've been through two bear markets now. The first bear market almost wiped me out completely. Like I did not know what I was doing. And so <laughs> um, from there, I, I kind of like didn't like Ethereum that much. I looked at Ethereum and I was like, dude, this thing is garbage. It's going to cost $200 for transaction. And this was 2019. So around that time, there was people spamming the network for like front runs and back runs and a bunch of MEV stuff. And so I didn't really realize what was happening under the hood, but I knew that this thing is not usable. Why would anyone care about this? And so I dropped it. And so time went on and then I sort of kind of like came back. Ethereum was almost like, a, I don't know how to describe it, like the one who got away almost. And, and they kind of just came back, you know, knocking on the door slowly. And I started hearing about DAOs. And that's when I started getting interested. I started like joining communities on Discord, participating a bit more. And then I kind of found Grow Your Own Cloud. I don't know if you want to talk about, about them, but they were kind of the first community that I planted my flag my flag in. Yeah, we'll definitely get to that. That's a lot of great hooks to zoom in on. I want to go back to your time at Ume. And, you know, you mentioned looking back, you definitely were not qualified for, yeah. for this first job of yours. But what, what do you think of the value of being thrown in the deep end or, you know, drinking from the fire hose, trial by fire, this accelerated learning? How is that in your life? How did it make an impact there? I'm going to be very honest with you. You got to have the right personality and the right mindset for it to work. Otherwise, you're just going to burn out. That's just no ifs, ands, or buts around it. I was very close to burning out multiple times. And if you don't have a system around you that allows you to deal with all the complexity, all the stuff that's happening to you, you're just gonna get wiped away. And so it's very valuable if you're prepared, right? If you consciously know, okay, I'm throwing myself into the deep end here. I'm gonna, I'm probably gonna struggle here, but I have a system in place. And we can talk about what, what that system might look like, but you need something that will sort of support you when your motivation is low or when you think that the world is ending and and because that's happened to me a few times, actually, I can count a few times. I, I like hopped off a call and I was like, oh my God, I don't think I'm going to live. I can't believe this happened. A lot, a lot of that negative self-talk. So yeah. Yeah. Would be curious to hear, you know, what, what kind of strategies or support systems you have in place in the past or right now to, to kind of get you through those moments. Exactly. Okay. So the very first thing I can, not thing, but strategy I can advise people to do is is engaging in structured reflection as often as possible. There's this method called the Kolb's method. So that's K-O-L-B. And it's 
created by this guy named David, Dr. David Cole. He was a sort of like learning psychologist, a learning specialist. And he came up with this cycle essentially that you could go through to reflect on, you know, anything. And, and so the cycle essentially is composed of four steps. You have an experience, you have a reflection step, you have an abstraction step, and then you have an experimentation step. And so what those four steps are sort of designed for is taking an experience you had at work or anywhere really, reflecting on what had happened, how you felt, what other people had said, giving it detail, giving it life, abstracting from that reflection. So what are the generalizable insights from your reflection? Did, you know, have you learned something, something new or have you seen this before in other areas of your life? You never know, you know, maybe you can see certain sort of tendencies at play at work kind of also happen at home. And so you can do a bit of mix and match. And then the most important step is experimentation. So this step is saying, okay, well, maybe there's a problem here. Let's run a, a very small experiment to see like, what can you do next? How can we fix this potentially? And if you just do this once a day, you're going to, you're going to get gains like no other, because a lot of people fail to reflect on what they're doing. They just kind of do it and then go with the flow. But how do you know you're improving? How do you know where you need work? And without taking time for yourself to sit down and, and do that work, you're definitely just um, wasting your time, honestly. So that's one thing I would recommend. The other thing I would recommend is the BEDSEM method. So I learned this from a guy called Dr. Justin Sung. He runs this website called ICANStudy.com. I've been an evangelist for these guys. I will have to get into it because like I'm shilling them hard, even though they don't ask me to, because like it's probably one of the only products I've used that has changed my life multiple times. When can you say a product has changed your life more than once? Probably never. These guys have. They put out they put out this course that's completely like changed my professional and personal life. And and the gist of it is this is they teach you how to learn. We're never taught how to learn properly. We're kind of just thrown into the deep end, even in school. And it's like, learn this curriculum. And then they never tell us how to concentrate. And they never tell us how to, how do you actually study? How do you prepare for an exam? All that sort of stuff. They, 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 they leave that out. Anyways, he gave me this, this method, method BEDSEM. So it's an acronym. So it's B-E-D-S and then M. So I can go through it real quick if that's interesting to you. Yeah, we'd love to hear that. Okay, so B is burn ships. And so essentially what this means is you're going to set a consequence for yourself. For context, this method is helpful for if you want to beat procrastination, because that's a big thing I've noticed as well. Maybe, maybe you're procrastinating to do the structured reflection. So this will help you. So the first thing is burn ships. And so what, what that might look like in practice is say you want to, you need to read a report and you've been sort of like holding it off. A very simple act you can do is text a friend and be like, hey, if I don't read this report by this evening, I'll... I'll send you 50 bucks and, and sort of an accountability partner, like, like you have with the NFT challenge. We can talk about that too. Um, you burnt the ship. You burned the ship in that regard, which was pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, we'll get into that. We will. I, I mean, I absolutely love it, dude. I tell everyone about it whenever I speak to other people. Like NFTs are not useless. My friend Eli is doing something very cool with them. Um, the next thing is environment. So you want to manage your environment. Your environment is so important, right? And so there's this, Thing called the cookie jar effect and so if there's a cookie jar sort of visible to you you're going to eat the cookie right 
And, and it's true for me, probably true for everyone. You know, if there's a cookie there, I'm going to eat the cookie. I'm not going to think twice about it. I like cookies. But if there's no cookies there, I'm not going to eat the cookie. There's no cookies. There's nothing there. So manage your environment accordingly. If you have a phone problem, put your phone somewhere just ridiculous, like stupid, like stupidly hard to get to so that you don't even think of, of trying to like use it. The next thing is distractions cheat sheet. So this is big. It's very simple. It's a list of distractions that you have. I have a list of maybe 15 to 20 running items of things that distract me while I'm working. And so this ranges from my phone all the way to just like bodily sensations. Like I feel itchy sometimes that's distracting. And what I do is before each working session, I look at that list and I'm like, well, have I optimized my environment such that this list, nothing kind of bothers me from this list. You'll notice like, as you reflect, there's a lot of things that do distract you. Like sometimes maybe your dog's barking and banging at the door, wanting to get out. That's distracting. That gets you out of flow. Um, and it could be a countless, countless, countless other things. The next thing is schedule. This is very simple. You should be time blocking. You should be having at least some, some way of structuring your day. Otherwise you, you're probably not going to get anything done. And so the biggest issue with scheduling is like, how do you stay accountable? Cause some people will have a schedule. They just won't follow it. Right. And so there's many reasons why that is. Maybe your schedule is too hard. Maybe it's not in a um, accessible format for you where you can easily see it and remind yourself what you're supposed to be doing. There's a, a bunch of different ways scheduling can go wrong, but like, just try your best. And then the last one is my favorite. And I know you wrote an article around something similar. It's, it's minimum viable goals. And this is like the easiest and most achievable next step to get you to just start. So I'll explain to you what I mean by that. Most people actually don't have a problem with doing the thing they're trying to do. They have a problem with starting. Once you actually start, you know, you, like even look at your own experience, things that normally just kind of work, right? You know, you start, you start doing something and you're almost like in this flow. It's almost like you slip into this mode where you easily can do that thing. What an MVG is, is like, if I'm sitting on the couch, but my goal is eventually to read for two hours, what is just the smallest thing I can do right now to get me there? And so I know we had conversations about this, but like, just look away from the screen for five seconds. That's it. And always give your brain an out. Tell your brain, hey, just look away for five seconds. But, you know, if you want to, you can go back to what you're doing. It's okay. Well, oftentimes, once you look away, you're like, okay, well, let's just stand up. It's okay. You know, just stand up. It's not a big deal. And, you know, you know, if we stand up for 10 seconds and it's not our thing, let's just sit back down. It's okay. And then you can see, you go, okay, let's just walk to our desk. Okay, let's open the book. Okay, let's just like one word, one word, that's it. Okay, two sentences. Almost like gaslighting your brain into doing what you got to do. 100% gaslighting your brain, that's a beautiful way to put it. Um, and you're almost, it's not even tricking, it's almost like your brain was designed this way. Your brain doesn't want to, like, it wants to conserve calories and energy, that's its job. And so you need to say, hey, this is just very easy, just don't, don't stress out, buddy. You can go back to binging whatever you were doing. And so when it comes to systems, those are two very big ones that I personally rely on. It's one thing, how do you get started? The bed sim technique will help you get started. And then after you're done, how do you reflect on what you did? And that's what I'll use Kolb's, right? And I also learned Kolb's from Dr. Justin Sung. So it's 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 kind of getting both, both angles of this. Um, what you do in the middle is what you do, right? Like. You do writing, you do work. I mean, you know how to do that, but um, there's not, nothing really to optimize there, but it's always the preparation and what you do after. That's really interesting. I think 
definitely a lot of people listening to this have probably struggled and continue to struggle with procrastination. The reflection aspect is interesting because people have probably heard of strategies to manage procrastination, but I don't think very many people have considered the value in just stopping and reflecting on it could just be the state of your life. How you get change and how you improve is through iteration. And iteration, you know, involves kind of assessing where you're at, making a small change, and then running the experiment again. I really like that you said the final part of Kolb's, uh, the experimentation part, is the most important stage because, you know, that's actually how you implement the knowledge that you learn. Another topic I wanted to touch up on is you've been doing a lot of writing lately on your personal website, Mananj.xyz, and been killing it with the blog posts in terms of quality and quantity. What's the story behind how you got started with publishing online? Because I've mm-hmm. also seen that you, you've published on Medium since 2020. You know, curious uh, the backstory there. Mm-hmm. This goes deep. I don't know if you want, do you want the deep answer, Eli? Yeah, we'll take the deep answer. Okay, I guess I'll give it to you. So... Funnily enough, writing wasn't my first love when it comes to creative expression. It was actually filmmaking. I remember as, as young, I don't know when Finding Nemo came out, but that was like the one movie as a kid that I adored. And I, like, I would cry every time. Um, what's his name? Nemo got, gets lost. And it would just it break my heart. And from then moment on, from that moment on, I, I always loved filmmaking and so i tried to get into it i tried making kind of like youtube videos and 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 this was when i was like a teenager and i and i think you can relate to this you know filmmaking isn't looked upon as a an amazing career and so you know with the influences i had at the time it was definitely not something that was encouraged and so instead of that you know i focused on school and you know my other responsibilities but I always felt that like in my throat, that like something had been capped, that like my ability to express who I was, so it was cut off. And it made me a bit angry, actually. I noticed that growing up um, because I was unable to say what I wanted to say and express myself in, in, in that way. I have a bunch of videos. I never released them, though, because I was very, very self-conscious about like what, what will people think of my work? How will they react? How will they judge? And so writing has been a on-ramp to, to that. I think one day I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to come back to filmmaking because I love it. But writing is that in-between step where I've learned a lot in my life and I have a lot to say. And it's almost more like a personal affirmation than it is doing something for someone else to read. It's more like I, can, I, can, I have something important to say and I want to say it and I don't care. You know, obviously, I care about the quality and, and like if it's connecting with people, but What's more important to me is that it gets said, period. One of my favorite quotes is actually from Maya Angelou, and it's, there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside of you. So yeah, definitely see how if your passions lied in filmmaking, but that wasn't really encouraged, you definitely should revisit it one day. But yeah, continue with how, how this transitioned into writing. Yeah, exactly. That's a beautiful quote. I'm going to have to steal that 100%. I'm just going to tell you that now. But from then on, I think that was when we met, Eli. And I think this is the one things that, one of the things I really appreciate about sort of meeting you and, and, and sort of building our friendship was you kind of were, you, you were one of the first people to say, continue writing. Nobody had said that to me before. To me, it was just like an intellectual curiosity. You know, I was good at it I th- to an extent. I felt like I was good at it. Uh, to me, I don't, I don't even edit my work. I kind of just write it and then post it. There you go. It's gone. Anyways. When you said that to me, it made a real impact for me. And I realized, you know, every time you open the post, because I can see it, 
it says, Eli opened the post. And I'm like, wow, I don't even care if this guy reads it. So long as he opened it, that's just confirmation. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm just clicking them. I'm not actually reading them. <laughs> exactly. Like I, I, I could care less. Like honestly, I was like, you know what? As long as he opens it, I'm going to continue writing. And I really, I, like, I guess this is a good place to thank you for doing that, for being that person for me to just say, Hey, keep going. You can do it. And I think everyone needs that person. And so I try to be that person now to other people where, you know, maybe they're just like just starting out. And, and so, you know, right casters came out of that. We can probably talk about that too, but that's where the writing came from. I think untold stories that needed to be told. That's, that's, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. I love that story. And yeah, great, great segue into right casters, which is definitely something I wanted to talk to you about. So for context for the listeners, um, a, non- a couple, maybe just a couple weeks ago, maybe more recently than that, is very, very new. Started a, a Telegram group for Farcaster users who are also, you know, aspiring writers. And you know, the community has been pretty great so far. It's like a group of nine, ten people, and we bounce ideas off of each other, help each other edit blog posts, drafts, things like that. I'm curious, what's the the inspiration for that? What's the story, and how's how's building that community been? Mm-hmm. So the honest answer is. <laughs> I wanted a, uh, what's the word? I wanted a non-spammy way to share my blog. And so there are a few ways you can go about that. You go on Farcaster and you say, everyone read my blog, look at me, look at me, look at me. A more, a better strategy is to say, everyone look at my blog. Is anyone else writing? Do we want to like come together here? Anyone else care about this thing? And it was very well received. I think um, people engaged with it and... I got 10 people. I got you, Alyssa, and a bunch of really great writers in there. And we're all people early in our writing journey. And and so maybe the, the initial reason why it started was a bit selfish, but at least I'm being honest. Um, I'm not going to lie to you guys. The community was just formed just as a byproduct because, you know, we all like writing and we want to help each other succeed. And so if anyone else listening wants to be a part of that community, and wants to get their newsletter going and just wants support. That's what we're doing for each other. We're providing a safe space to, you know, air your concerns about your writing. Maybe you've not feeling confident in one area. And, and there's a lot, there's, there's help out there in that community that to, to help like move you along. So if you want to join, like hit me up, DM me on Farcaster. It's not a big deal, but that was the start. That's what I would say. That's, that's a funny start actually. Cause you know, I have thought a lot about, what is it, a non-spammy or, or polite or courteous or, you know, like non-socially taboo way of sharing what you create in the world. And I think it's a dilemma that a lot of us early content creators face. You know, you, you obviously want your work to to impact people, to reach people and to take off. But at, at the very early stages, especially, you don't, it's unclear if other people will appreciate the value of your work and if it's just a nuisance or, or whatever. So how have you kind of dealt with that, that, that feeling and that voice in, in your head? How, how mm. have you kind of reconciled with it? And what, what gives you the, uh, what, what allows you to press that publish button every time? Ah, <laughs> oh, that's a great question. Okay. So James Clear, he wrote that Atomic Habits book. And one part of that book that really inspired me was the part where you, this is biking coach and um, I won't go over the full story. If you haven't read Atomic Habits, you definitely should. It's like one of the greatest books in, in self-help. But he talks about this concept of margin, marginal gains. One of the, the big problems I personally faced was perfectionism. And, and it's like, if, if I'm going to release a post, I want it to be like very good. 
And then I realized that that's really getting in the way of my productivity. There's a lot of things I want to write about. And so I decided, you know, what, what's, a, what's a healthy balance between putting good content out, but also just like um, getting a lot of it out there, right? The quantity and the quality. And, and I'm, I actually err more on the quantity because I want to build the habit first, opposed to just building quality first, right? Because the, quanti- the quality will come from the quantity. I don't know if you've heard the story of like the, the photography class with the, the two. The no, two. I haven't. Okay. What is, what's the story there? So I'll give you the story. So essentially there's this photography class and, and for their final assessment. Um, okay. So first of all, they're split into two groups. The first group is told for their final assessment that they'll be graded on the quality of one photo. The other group is graded on the quality on the quantity of photos they take. And so the year goes by and a lot of the people who are tasked with the one photo are theorizing. They're thinking about what's the best photo? How am I going to do it? And, and they get kind of their one photo, they submit it. The people tasked with quantity, they're just ripping photos. They're getting so many photos out there because their grade depends on it. And, and at the end of the year, they found out that the people who were in the quantity group did better, had higher quality. So through quantity, there's quality, right? And so it's the question of once you get into the habit of anything, really, there's going to come a day where you're going to not suck, right? You might suck now. So just be okay with that. But one day you're going to not suck and it's going to be a a beautiful day. You're going to have a great time. So that's, I think, how I deal with it, how I think about it. That story rings in the back of my mind. It's more about quantity. One day the quality will come. The depth of thought will come. The quality of writing will increase a lot once I start building those marginal gains, right? So that's what I would say about that. It almost goes back to what we spoke about earlier, like repeated iterating over something many times is actually what, what allows you to improve and change. I like that. So for anyone who's considering, you know, anything actually, you know, putting the reps in, putting your ideas out there, whether it's good or not, just worry mm-hmm. about getting better. I think that's a great focus. Another question I had is, I know it's still early days in, you know, your writing journey, but you've been putting out basically one piece a day, more than one piece a day for every day for the past two weeks. And I imagine many people, including myself, have tried to build a daily writing habit. So would you be willing to share some of the, the strategies or the way you've approached being so consistent? Okay, yeah. So in one of the pieces that I write about, I, I forgot the author who originally gave gave the strategy, but it's it, the piece is called Do Nothing. And this is what I do. Every morning, I do my morning routine. I come down to my office and I have an hour carved out where I only can do two things. I can either write or I can do nothing. That's it. Nothing else is allowed to happen during that time. And I found that it's like, my brain, my brain is like, you know what? We could be on Farcaster scrolling. We could be checking our email. I could be checking my Discord. But when you put this constraint of nothing, your brain hates it. Your brain will fight tooth and nail. It doesn't care if, you're, if your task is to do 50 push-ups. It will do that. When you have that almost this contrast, like this very stark contrast between doing nothing and, and at least doing something, it, it makes it very easy to start. And it's perfectly okay to just sit there for an hour and do nothing. At least you get that time to reconnect with yourself, do some deep breathing, whatever. But more often than not, your brain is not going to like it. Um, So that's the very first thing I would recommend. 
give yourself that time and then you just give yourself two options, do nothing or write. Also build, build that support system. Meeting you, meeting Alyssa, meeting a lot of the Rightcaster people, that was a very, that was an early inspiration for me because I knew that these people would open my newsletter, so it better be out there. And I had almost this social pressure to sort of like fulfill. And now, now that we're talking on it about it on a podcast, I, I probably won't stop. You know, now it's out there. Now people know that I write every day, and they might expect a newsletter every day. And so I, I guess I I can't let them down now, right? The expectation has been set. And so another thing I'll also add that I learned from James Clear is, is identity. So I, I just released a, a post on values. And, and in it, I, um, I referenced a quote from James Clear where he talks about like how to shift your identity. If you're a smoker and you stop smoking and you want to stop smoking, if you're still identified as a smoker, you'll never stop, right? Like that is who you are. The moment you stop and you say to yourself, I'm not a smoker, sorry you'll stop smoking because people who don't smoke don't smoke, right? It's just very, it's just common sense. So if you want to build a writing habit, well, how do you build that identity as a writer? He, he gives two steps. Either, you, the first step is to decide what your identity is and then to prove it to yourself with small wins. And so the example I use is like, I use a stock market analogy. Are you going to buy shares in that identity? And so you might have identity as a writer and the ticker symbol is like WRTR, whatever. Every time you buy shares in that stock, your, your identity there grows. And so over time, you're going to get compound interest. And then you'll just be able to rely on the fact that you're a writer. And that's what writers do. They write. Just in the same way, like, you find it super easy to scroll on Farcaster. Because at some level, your identity allows for that. You have some identity as a consumer. And so that's, that, those are two, two to three things that I would suggest for anyone who wants to start. Yeah, I like those uh, combining mental, emotional, and social pressures to, to get what you want done. And for anyone listening interested, I, I believe it was Neil Gaiman who, yes. whose rule is to write or do nothing every morning. And it's been incredibly effective for him. He's a very prolific and accomplished writer. He is. Goaded. Another thing I wanted to touch up on is Farcaster. We've referenced it a couple of times in this show. And for people listening, Farcaster, I think the one-line pitch is that it's a Web3 version of Twitter. It was started by two Coinbase alum, Dan Romero and Varun Srinivasan, probably butchered the last name. But this is actually how Mananch and I met. We followed each other on Farcaster. And for me, it's been a great way to meet really interesting people in the crypto and Web3 space. There's a great community around it. And Mananch, just curious to hear, how's your Farcaster experience been so far? It's been phenomenal. I think Farcaster has been the single greatest crypto product I've, I've had the pleasure using. Even though it's very similar to Twitter, it's not similar at all. The quality of discourse, the quality of people you'll find on that platform is zero to none. Twitter, in my eyes, is hot trash compared to this protocol. And the future of this protocol is just phenomenal. I'm, I'm going to write a post on this, but many people might just think that it's like some app you download and you sort of use it like social media. It's so much more than that. It's what Twitter should have been. It's an open protocol where people can now build their own clients. They can build their own communities. They can use this data, this, this like user data in any way they wish to create custom feeds, to create a, a truly like 
open sort of experience for people. And so I'm very excited for where Farcaster is going. And if you, if you're in crypto, you'd need to be on this app. I'm sorry. Like DM Dan at DWR on Twitter and just like beg him. I don't care what you have to do. Tell him Eli and Manonj sent you because you need to be on that app. And yeah, this is where, you know, we, Eli and I met, but like, this is where I got my first clients. It's funny. Farcaster has paid me. It's a, there's an ROI to being on this app. I have user research sort of expertise. And as I was talking to people, people wanted to work with me. They saw the value in doing user research. They didn't know how to do it. And I'm obviously I'm not going to name drop, but I have a contract signed because of Farcaster, because of what that platform has enabled me to do, to contact highly relevant sort of builders in the space who need, not, not exactly need, but would benefit from what, I, what I'm providing. And so Farcaster has just been... It's, just, it's more than a social media experience. That's what I'll tell you. It's much more than that. Agree with everything that you've said so far. Can definitely say for myself, Farcaster has been, I don't like to use this phrase very often, but it has legitimately been life-changing. And I know for many other users, it's the same way. Like Alex Kwan, um, who's building Pearl, mentioned, I think a couple of days ago, that half of the first round for Pearl were either like, directly from Farcaster or indirectly contributed via Farcaster. So like Mananj said, if you're into crypto and Web3 at all, you have to be on this app. But especially if you're building in this space, I think it's an invaluable tool. Um, you can get investors, mentors, users, just people interested in your product and people that will be willing to give feedback on your product. And definitely, definitely a super valuable part for anyone interested. 100% agree. So slightly pivoting the topic, but I wanted to also talk about just the general concept of making friends on the internet. You and I are talking today only because you sent me a DM on Twitter a while back. And I know that you're pretty active in reaching out to people, especially on Farcaster. So just wanted to ask, what's your approach to reaching out to people and what kind of value have you seen from it so far? If you haven't done it, it's probably the single greatest thing you can do for yourself, both personally and professionally. The type of people I've met through Farcaster alone is astounding. I've talked to people I would never get the opportunity to speak with. Like I live in Canada. I'm not in Silicon Valley. I'm not in New York. I'm not in the US at all. And I still get to tap into the minds of some of the greatest people in the space. And so my approach is, is, is actually quite direct. And you'd be surprised, like I've yet to fail in my, in my approach on Farcaster. So the first thing I do is, is sort of meaningfully engage in their content, read up on who they are. I also have a blog post on how to talk to anyone. You guys can check that out too. It's like the A to Z on how to get these calls and how to make them valuable for all people. But I kind of either get them on Telegram or I just kind of DM them like, hey, I want to learn more about you and your story. And you'll see me say that a lot and it works a lot because everyone has a story that they want to share. I'm not saying to them, I want you to be my client I don't want anything from them. I want their story. And that's something people can readily give. Just in the same way I'm giving you my story and I'm having a great time doing it. I love talking, right? Other people love talking too. And it's just such a privilege to hear these people talk. And some of the people I've talked to, you know, Medicant Bias, he is, he's an absolute character. I had a chance to speak with Gabriel at Google. I had to speak, obviously, with you. We have our recurring chats. I'm speaking with just amazing people with just crazy stories. And so the value that you get out of it is, isn't exactly material for me, at least it's doubling down on this assumption that I have about the space. And it's that the smartest people in the world are here and I see it. 
And I've noticed if you can listen and sort of like quietly probe, you can get a lot, a lot of beautiful stories out of people. And you can just learn a lot secondhand, you know, through others' experiences that they're not going to write about. They're not going to tell anyone about it. They're only going to tell you about it because you asked. And so that's the importance of asking amazing questions, ensuring that you're coming from a place of curiosity, not from wanting to get something from the other person. And, and that's how I've been able to grow connections with people. And it's like, I, I can't put words to it. Every time I, I'm off a call, I have a smile so big on my face. And I want to almost like understand how, what is it like to be in your shoes? What were your struggles? Let me know. I want to know, you know, in a respectful, conscious way, right? I love this, uh, this curiosity first kind of approach to making friends or just making connections over the internet. And I know we were shitting on Twitter a, a little earlier, but I definitely think there's, there's still value in that platform because the cold DM is incredibly powerful and has a much higher success rate than you might imagine. One of my favorite writers, Paul Millard, has an interesting quote that I've started to live by. And it's something along the lines of every single time I read something on the internet from someone that I enjoy. I always make sure to send them a quick DM or email just telling them how much I enjoyed it because he's a writer. He knows the difficulty and the challenge in putting yourself and your work out there. And for me, you know, in the last three, four months, I've taken this advice really to heart, DM'd maybe 50 people on Twitter is telling them that I, I, I like their writing and stuff. And it's, it's given me a great chances to kind of just connect and make friends over the internet that way. So definitely agree with, with everything that you said there. That's a beautiful quote. Thank you for sharing that. You know, if, if you're sitting there and a thought comes by that, like, maybe I should give this person a compliment. Like, I've, I've also just been doing exactly that in my personal life. Like, I'll go to school. And if a thought comes to mind, something positive about some stranger, I've, it's been very uncomfortable, but I actually go to people and I'll like say, hey, sorry to disturb you. But like, I really like your shirt. And you'd be surprised how like the, the reactions I get, like people smile from someone who receives like a genuine compliment. Like our society has been so sort of like muffed up that like getting a compliment from a stranger can completely switch your day around. Um, so I really resonate with that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you said a compliment can make your day. I know for some people who, you know, especially men don't really receive compliments too often. I know it can, those things can last for, for years. You know, some, some compliments will last a lifetime. To anyone listening, definitely try and go out of your way. You know, if you enjoyed someone's writing, shoot them an email. If you like someone's shoes, just let them know, you know, spread a little bit of positivity in the world. Yeah. Be a good neighbor. Be of service. That's, those are Those are good values to have, you know. You don't need to be so selfish and stuck in your head all the time. Once in a while, you can lend a, a good word, a happy thought. Those never hurt you. Definitely. One big part of your life that I don't think we've touched a lot about on is your work in user research. Your first job was at a user research startup, but you know, you've come pretty far from then. Now you've co-founded URL, a Web3 user agency. Just curious to hear a little bit more about about you know, this company that you've created and, or actually I think a better place to start is for the uninitiated. Can you give a rundown of what exactly is user research? Sure. So I think we'll start with user experience as a whole. And so um, Donald Norman is kind of the godfather of this space and he gives a great definition. Well, if there, if there are show notes, um, I'm going to send you the link to that video where he explains it, but he walks through like, what does it mean for a user? What is, what does user experience mean? And in simple terms, it's, the experience anyone has using a product or service. And so this could be while using the product, this could be before using the product, this could be after using the product. 
And by experience, this could be many things. It could be, you know, how someone feels when they're using your product. This could be, you know, how they think about your product. How do they perceive it? But also like general effectiveness too. It's like, is this product effective? And so if that's user experience, user research is essentially a structured way to figure, figure those things out. What, what exactly is happening in the lives of our users? Is our product doing what it's supposed to do? And if not, what can we do about it? And so that's what user research does. It's essentially helping teams, product teams, any team, understand their users. When I first joined Yume, I didn't really understand user research. I thought, I didn't know what it was, honestly. I was not qualified. And I had an amazing mentor. His name is Jay. He runs a, a user research firm as well in Web2 called Still Ape. And he was, he's this like Zen Buddhist monk type of guy. And he kind of like put me under his wing and I learned so much. And when it came to Web3, I noticed that a lot of product teams are not doing any user research. They're kind of like raising money somehow off of a pitch deck and building something that no one will use. And it's just, it hurts my heart because it kind of like dampens the credibility in this space. When you have a, a product that's not usable, that doesn't solve a problem, what does that do for the industry as a whole? I mean, if all the products are like that, nobody's gonna wanna be here. And the people who are here are people who fought tooth and nail to try to figure out this technology stuff, right? Like people who are here, like had a year and a half long learning curve just to get to where they are. And they still don't know so much. It changes every other day. And so we saw a, a, a a big need in that area. And so I connected with um, Estella. She is sort of a teammate of mine at Growing Iron Cloud. I know we haven't really talked about them. Maybe we can touch on them later, but she connected me with this guy named Henry. Henry, And he's uh, he worked at CabinDAO, but he also was like a previous founder and, and we both loved users, but we also loved research. And we said, hey, like let's join forces and get this done. And so we sort of stood up a, a bit of a, a community we have a Discord community. We have a bunch of other researchers in the space who come with us. We also have a bunch of like CEOs and sort of founders who need help. And so one of the things I love doing just to give back is like talking to product teams and telling them how I would do research completely for free. Like I could care less if you paid me. What I care about is if you do the research, then we all win. That's what I care about. So. We started this agency up, um, we, we just started about like a month ago and we already have a pipeline of clients. Like the need is there. People really want user research to get done. And so now we're just capturing that demand and, and trying to just perform in the best way possible to actually get them the insights they need about their users so that they can make better decisions. And so a, a bit of a catchphrase that I use is we're risk mitigation in the riskiest market in the world. A lot of people resonate with that because it's, it's true. If you don't know what your users are doing, you don't know what their problems are, what their needs are. You're going to build a product that just isn't sufficient for them. I shared a quote on Farcaster. It's like early majority building for early majority. And that mindset's got to go because we're going to get into this like circular feedback loop of just building products for other crypto native people. And we're not, we're never going to get anywhere until we start doing research on what exactly the problems are with the late majority and the laggards. Those are interesting people to study because they have completely different experiences with technology and they could teach you something that can completely 
revolutionize an industry. You never know. What if you learn something that completely revolutionized wallets forever and made it 60% more efficient and better? You're cutting off the possibility of even allowing that to happen when you're not doing research, right? And so I'm very passionate about the subject. I bet people can tell. Um, but that's kind of like what user research is, what user experience is, and kind of like the URL piece. We want to be the be that player for people. If you want to learn how to do user research, DM me. You have a responsibility to DM me. I'm sorry. I don't know who else you're going to talk to. I will help you because I want to see you succeed. I want to see all founding teams succeed. I want your product to work because that's meaningful for everyone, right? I want to zoom in on user research in the context of Web3, which is what your company is working on right now. We've had conversations about this in the past, but from what I've seen, you user research is all the more important in Web3 because the space is so new and, and the products are just so financialized that without user research, it's hard to tell if you're a solution to a problem or a solution looking for a problem. And, mm-hmm. you know, curious, you know, with your experience in, in this field, what are, what are your kind of observations on, on that? Yes. So you're definitely like bang on when it comes to problems around the financialization of products. A lot of UX professionals, we, we like to say that a lot of these problems, it, like it, it depends really. Like that's our catchphrase. It depends. You have to consider context of use, who's using it. What does the product even do? Like if it's a DEX, for example, then it's highly expected that, you know, this is like a financial operation I'm performing. I'm doing a swap, right? This makes sense to me. But when I have to sign and send gas for a Web3 social app, then it kind of gets confusing, right? It's like, well, when I use Twitter, I'm not spending money to, to perform transactions. And Farcast, Farcaster got that right when they went the sufficiently decentralized route because user experience isn't going to exactly line up with, um, like a good user experience isn't going to line up with like fully decentralized systems. It's kind of hard to do that. Because you can't exactly control a lot of these things. You can't exactly change the protocol on a whim to improve user experience. The protocol is the way it is because of, you know, game theory. That's how it has to work, right? In order for the whole for the whole economic system to work. And so that's a, a big tension that a lot of designers in the space have to deal with. Like these are these are constraints that are kind of handed to us. And we're we're supposed to then like look at this and be like, well, we can't change these constraints. So what can we do? And so that's where research is very important, where it's like, you know, I can't exactly manipulate the Ethereum protocol to where I can not pay gas because that would just break the protocol. I now need to see, well, how can I, A, aid in their education and so that, so that they know why we are asking for gas to begin with, or B, are there ways to abstract gas away? And, and so there are like other solutions out there that are trying to address these questions. Um, and so it's a question of, do these product teams see the value in, in studying their users, right? A lot of them don't right now because they're very busy, right? You know, they need to get a product out the door. They just raised some funds. A lot of pressure is for them to deliver. And when you bring a researcher on, you're taking the risk of hearing bad news. Someone who's going to tell you the objective truth and maybe you don't want to hear it, right? You know, your investors lose, your users use, lose, you, you lose. If you bite the bullet early, you might learn something that allows you to pivot if you need to. You now have data to sort of make decisions on. You're not just guessing anymore. Um, a bit of a tangent here, I'm sorry, but... All good, all good. It definitely seems like we're in a phase of crypto right now where people are really focused on solving difficult technical challenges, but 
there's not a lot of attention on the more social, emotional, ideological, or educational challenges that you know we'll eventually have to face if we want to onboard the next billion users on in, into crypto. So mm-hmm. definitely seems like user research is is going to be ever more important. You said something very important that I want everyone to understand. User experience is not a feature. It's mandatory to consider. Whenever you see a product that says better UX, they're talking out of their ass. They've not done the UX research. They're, they're using it like much in the same way you would say, oh, our product is 10 times faster. UX is not a metric. UX is fundamental to your product development life cycle. Anytime you see that, just, just know that these people are grasping at straws. And if you want confirmation, look at who they're hiring and look who's on the team. If it's only engineers, then you know where their values lie. There are people from Web2 who have worked with user researchers a lot, building companies in Web3 who are kind of like they're bootstrapping, it's on the side. To them, UX research is a luxury. It shouldn't. And that's what we're trying to fix, right? Well, I know a big part of, you know, user research is asking questions. And we spoke about this before, but, you know, you mentioned to me, it's very, it's a very qualitative kind of qualitative science. And I'm interested in, in both the context of user research and, and personal relationships as well. But, but let's start with user research. How can we, or how can user researchers ask more insightful questions or how can founders and builders ask more insightful questions? That's a really good question. So the first thing I want people to, to do is there's never going to be a templated solution to asking good questions. There are going to be principles, but it ultimately is going to come down to what is it you want to learn? What are you not getting right now? What is missing? If you're ignorant of some key piece of data that will help you make a decision, that that is the first place to start. You need to acknowledge that something is missing and you need to reflect on what exactly do I not know here? Because you're going to ask the wrong questions if you don't. So always start with yourself. Start with your team. Start with a list of assumptions, basically, around that problem space before you start asking questions. Once you're entirely clear on what you want to learn, what to ask becomes quite obvious. But I'll give you some pointers. You want to stick to open-ended questions. And so depending on the context, if you're going to have a conversation like you or I, you want your questions to be a little bit more open, open-ended in nature. Because if I asked you, do you like ice cream? What would you say? I would get nothing more from you. I would get an affirmative, but I wouldn't get any why behind it. Instead of saying, do you like ice cream? I can ask you the same question. Do you like ice cream? If so, which, which flavor is your favorite and why? And, and so you would probably tell me, I don't know, vanilla. And then you tell me, yeah, I loved it ever since a kid. And then you're con- that, that's a lot more data, right? So open-ended questions, that's very important. Third is listening. Half the battle in asking a good question is actually listening to the answer. Don't listen to what you want to hear. Listen to what's being said. Because there's going to be selection, there's going to be some bias, confirmation bias. You're going to pick out the information that you wanted to hear. And you're going to completely ignore the stuff that's running counterintuitive to whatever you're trying to learn. And the last thing I'll leave you with is, is asking questions that, that are useful. And so what do I mean by that? Always ask yourself is, will this question likely lead me to 
an answer that will help me. Otherwise, it's don't ask the questions. It's, it's a waste of time. That helps in the user research context. Now, in the personal relationship context, listening is the number one most important skill you can learn. When you listen effectively, it means shut your mouth. Hear what's being said to you and then really try to follow what this person, what story this person is sort of taking you on, right? And then you'll be able to say, oh, I have a follow-up here. And oh, I'm not sure about that. And you can sort of like write that down on the side. And then eventually you can be like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to stop you, but you said something really interesting back here. And so that all starts from listening and having that mindset of listening. So I did that post I mentioned before where I was like, how to talk to anyone. There's a bunch of like conversation techniques that I sort of lay out for for, for you there. Um, so feel free to check that out. Yeah, this listening one has always been in a big one for me. Like I'm doing it right now, but a lot of the times when I hear someone talk, I'm just thinking about kind of the next thing to, to say, you know, just mm -hmm. like kind of planning out where the, where the conversation goes. And I would like to hear how you kind of deal with this. Is There's kind of a fine line between you turning it into an interview, right? And you mm -hmm. sharing, you know, tidbits from your own life. And, you know, how, how do you approach balancing that and, and kind of making the conversation flow the best? So there is a, there's a very fine balance you want to strike when you're, when you're talking to people. When you're talking to people in a personal context, you don't want to turn it into an interview. In reality, it will sound a lot like an interview, but you don't want the other person to feel like they're being interviewed. The way around that is, is like you said, every so often you're throwing in a fact about yourself or you're saying, oh yeah, that happened to me too. But most of your time, 90% of your time is spent listening and letting them talk because at the end, people will feel like, wow, this person listened to me. I had a great time. I want to talk to this person again. Like every, anyone, honestly, anyone can sort of remember a time where they spoke to someone who they just talked about themselves the whole time and, and how that made you feel, right? It's like this person just talks about themselves like for the last 50 minutes. I didn't get a chance to speak to myself. That's one way to look at it. But if you're smart, you'll get that person to really like you and you'll get a lot of valuable data when you take the mindset like, I want this person to talk and I'll be a bit strategic on how I get them there. But that's something I would recommend. Um, even in my profession, like thinking about what to say next is, is actually a symptom. The root is preparation. So a tip I can, I can give anyone who's interested in this is your preparation defines you know, the quality of the, of the conversation when you, and, and I know Eli, you did a bunch of that pre preparation too. I noticed it's like, you talked about like, okay, we're going to go to this topic, this topic, this topic. You do the exact same in user research. You have an interview guide and you're not reading off a script. You're just referencing, referencing it. If you ever get kind of lost, because you never know how the other person is going to respond. You might ask one question that lasts 30 minutes, or you might ask one question that lasts five. And so you need to be able to know, okay, like what can, where can I go next? And that lets you listen because now you're saying to yourself, okay, I have this for me. It's my safety net. If anything happens, I know I can keep the conversation moving. It'll be valuable for both me and, and, and the listener and, and whoever I'm talking to. And so I, I, I tell them, you know, preparation is key in, in, in this game. And if I could just add, add one more like piece of advice to that, I think having conversations and social skills in general, people tend to view as you know, these are just kind of static traits that, that can't be changed. But I definitely think that through practice, you can get a lot better. So for me, reaching out to people on Twitter, having like these conversations, forcing myself to research the person, listen to the person and ask insightful questions has definitely, I think, made me like a better conversationalist and a better listener.
we've been recording for a while now, and I just want to wrap up our conversation with some quick questions, starting off with, I like to ask everyone this, but what are some of the books that you recommend most often to others? Okay. I'm a big book guy. Um, I love spiritual books. They're like oh, phenomenal to, to read. But the first book I can recommend is How Can I Help by Ram Dass. Uh, it's kind of hard to get, but it's an incredibly beautiful book on what helping actually means. And, and its concept is like, you can't help anyone until you help yourself. And until you're in a good place, you can't help anyone else. Another book I really like is Nonviolent Communication. Everyone should should read that book. It should be mandatory. In a business context, you're going to make friends. You're going to help resolve and, and mediate confrontations very easily using that technique. What else do I recommend? I, uh, I like reading sort of Indian books. So one book I obviously recommend is called the Bhagavad Gita. It's like a spiritual text and you can get English versions of it. And it's essentially like a manifesto for life. And it's like this, it's, it's this amazing story that has a lot of like really great truths in it. It kind of like baked into a story format. Um, do I have any other books? Ah, anything by Michael Singer. So The Untethered Soul, The Surrender Experiment, Living Untethered. Also, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. So psychedelics, very cool area, incredibly underexplored. Such a phenomenal story behind it. That's what I recommend the Almanac of Naval Ravikant is very good too. Yeah, a classic. If you haven't read it, what are you doing? What do you like about that book? I'm curious. I think, you know, it's just, it's very dense in in wisdom. Naval, the way he thinks is very nonconformist. But at the same time, once you hear these ideas, you're like, wow, these actually make a lot of sense. And there are definitely some principles that have stuck with me. So yeah, plus one for Naval Ravikant. Definitely seems like a lot of the books that you've recommended are in the realm of like mindfulness, spirituality. That was a topic that I don't think we're going to have time to go over today, but we'll definitely have to run it back sometime. Have you have you as a guest again? One last question I'd want to ask is what are some Farcaster accounts or Twitter accounts that you follow and would definitely recommend for other people? So the first one is uh, a, a very special Farcaster account and the guy who runs it, phenomenal interviewer. And I've had the greatest time speaking with him today. So if you're not following Eli on Farcaster, please do. Great writing, a stand-up guy. You'll learn a lot. Um, you had me in the first half. I actually thought it was, <laughs> thought it was I thought someone it else. Was gonna be, yeah, I thought it was going to be someone else. No, no, no. First one is obviously you. Who else? Uh, Alyssa. I would follow Alyssa on, on Farcaster. She's just a super cool character, honestly. That's what I'll say. Just down to earth. I would also follow Coach Cole. So Kevin Cole, he's, a, he's, he's my performance coach. And this guy's legit. If you guys need to 10x your career, talk to this guy. Because he understands Web3. He understands the industry. And he's very good at what he does. You know, I just had a session with him today. And He's honestly kind of like changed my perspective a lot. And so coaching is always a good idea if you're coachable, right? Um, who else would I recommend? There's just so many great accounts on Farcaster. I'm kind of off Twitter, so I have nothing on Twitter. But like on Farcaster, you can't really go wrong. Like there's just so many great accounts. So just I tell you, I tell people, explore. Feel free to unfollow if you don't like people. Um, you always have that option. 
Yeah, I follow basically, I follow everyone back on Farcaster. Don't think I've unfollowed a single person yet just because the, the signal to noise ratio is so high. I think everyone is pretty ideologically aligned, crypto native people really interested in all of the same things. And if there is just one takeaway you have from listening to this conversation, I would say it, it should be to get on Farcaster because that's where Mananch and I met. It's been life-changing for both of us and just a really great overall product and can be life-changing for you as well. Mm-hmm. Couldn't have said it better myself. Right. Well, I think that that should wrap up our conversation. There are a lot of topics that we didn't get to, like mindfulness, psychedelics, grow your own cloud. So I think maybe sometime in the future, we'll have you back on again to talk about these things. But thanks for taking the time today, Mananj. Thank you, Eli.